The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Rosemary Gladstar, is a renowned herbal teacher and practitioner with more than 35 years of experience working with herbs. She is the director of the International Herb Symposium and the annual Women's Herbal Conference, and she is the co-founder of Traditional Medicinal Tea Company and founding president of the nonprofit United Plant Savers. Rosemary Gladstar is back on Health Watch today to talk about her latest book, Herbs for Children's Health, How to Make and Use Gentle Herbal Remedies for Soothing Common Ailments. Welcome back to Health Watch, Rosemary Gladstar. Hi, David. Thank you. Well, I really loved how you opened the book, Herbs for Children's Health, talking about um, both teaching your, your nieces and granddaughter, but also um, talking also about your own experience having studied under a lot of herbal teachers but finding that what you learned from your own grandmother was was something that stuck with you the most and and perhaps the deepest. Well, I would say absolutely. You know, those things that are planted in us when we're really young, they and if they're watered and tended, they blossom. And so really, to this day, though I've learned so many more herbs and so much more information, it's those very powerful, simple, but profound teachings that my grandmother gave me in my garden when I was in her garden when I was just a child. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because in the herbal tradition, when we look at how it's been passed down really through generation after generation, it's usually grandparent to grandchild, you know. So, you know, it's really, I think it's still very important when we learn a little bit that we pass it down, you know. Like if you learn a little bit of plant ID, then you share it with your children because they never forget it. When you, if you can teach children when they're young about plants or anything really, It'll stay with them their whole lives. Could so, you give an example of, of some of the things you, you did with your nieces, for instance, in the garden? What sort of things would you point out to them when they were little kids? Well, I, you know, I'll start by saying what my grandmother used to do. is she would, When she would take us, it was, my, it was myself and my siblings, when she would take us into our garden, she would be weeding, but she also had a basket. So when she would be weeding purslane or the lamb's quarter or the amaranth, she would always place those in the gathering basket um, and then, you know, she would just gently tell us what those were for in the dandelion as well. So, you know, I, to this day, some of my favorite weeds are the weeds I weed out of my garden, the amaranth, the lamb's quarter, the purslane. Um, and so when my, when my nieces were young and my, my granddaughter, um, who still is young, but when my nieces used to come up, I, what I did was I did all kinds of fun things with them that would engage them so that they were, it wasn't like here's something you have to read or study or memorize. It would, be that we might go out and pick some fresh mint or lavender or roses, and then we'd come back in and we'd make a little cream or we'd make a body powder or facial scrub. And, you know, both of them, I'm proud to say, both of those nieces now who are young women, when I first wrote that first edition of that little book, they were like 6 and 10. Now they're both in their 20s. But both of them have maintained a lifelong love of plants and natural healing, and both have gone their careers. They both went on to college, and both of their careers are focused around nature. So... You know, I played just a small part in that. Of course, they had their teachings from their parents and, you know, their aunts and their, their aunt and uncle run uh, herb farms. So whenever they would go up to visit on the herb farm, these teachings were reinforced. But, you know, it, it just it, it's beautiful with children. I know for myself it was um, a very special part of my childhood. And, 
it became like a passion as I grew up, and it then, of course, became my career. So it, it's not that may not happen with all of your nieces and nephews and grandchildren, but within every family, just like it has always been, there's usually one or two of those children who has a, has a special affinity with nature or plants, and there's not a whole lot in our culture today that nurtures that. So when you notice that, usually they're, they're you know, always like, running out into the fields or always in the garden or they're always talking to little creatures, you know, and and to nurture that means that you're actually nurturing this ancient tradition and, you know, bringing it forth and how it manifests can take multiple trails, you know, like it can, people can go into professional herbalism, they can become practitioners, they can incorporate it into medical practices, so there's a lot of different ways that it can manifest, but absolutely nourishing that is so important. And if listeners weren't lucky enough to have a parent or grandparent who was passing down information about uh, <laughs> herbalism and gardening, but they're wanting to pass that on to their kids nevertheless, the the book Herbs for Children's Healthier, the latest edition, it's not just treating, teaching people how to treat conditions, but it's also teaching people how to make the medicines themselves, right? It's, yeah, it's a, it's a hands-on, which is most of what most of my work is. It's about you know, teaching people to bring it back into the kitchen, and in some of the projects, engaging the children. You know, I do want to mention a couple other fabulous books. That uh, one is by my teacher Juliet De Berkeley Levy. That's called Nature's Children, and I to this day it's a classic, and people still love it and read it. It's not that it's so; um, it is rich in information, but that's not really why I really recommend it for parents today. It's because it really helps to bring forth that idea of how we connect with plants and how we pass that down to the children and how you know we can raise our children even in this modern technological area to raise them with a sense that they're held by nature um it's beautiful and the other one is actually for children it was written by leslie tiara a very very incredible practitioner she and her husband michael tiara both very well-known herbalists but she wrote a book that's called the uh herb book for kids and it's just full, it's for children who are a little bit older, you know, 8, 9, 10. It's not for the youngest set of children, but it's just full of these wonderful hands-on projects that teach children how to make salves and ointments and, you know, plant ideas. Have you, have you seen it, David? It's such a wonderful book. I, I haven't seen that book. I'm, I'm familiar with their work a little bit, but not that yeah. specific book. So um, if we have parents listening who are intrigued about possibly treating some of uh, some uh, ailments for for their children at home with herbs, but they're concerned about safety. You you have a whole section that addresses the concerns people hear in the media about safety around using herbs in general, but even even more specifically using herbs in in children. C- can you speak to that topic before we talk about some con- common conditions? Yes, you know the the thing is, I think we always have to be concerned about what we give our children. But those herbs that are considered children's herbs, the herbs that are, have, a, again, a long history, I mean, they're so much safer and oftentimes far more effective than the pharmaceuticals without any of the side effects. The, you know, there, there are herbs, of course, that can be very toxic and they're very potent, and, most, and many of those herbs were the basis for pharmaceuticals. But not, those herbs are not generally given to children, especially, especially in home health situations. If they are used occasionally, it's through a practitioner, you know, where you go to see a naturopath or a doctor who's using plants. Uh, and they sometimes they might choose some of the stronger herbs. But um, in general, when we talk about herbs for children, we're talking about this very large group of herbs that have a long history and are exceptionally safe. And if a child does get a reaction, 
it's going to be like um, like itchy skin. Like an example might be chamomile. Like chamomile is one of our most benign herbs, and it's been used for children and very old people whose systems are really compromised. And it's generally considered 100% safe, but it belongs to a large composite, uh, the large composite family. And some people just get allergies. They get like itchy eyes and itchy skin. So occasionally you'll see that, but it's nothing that won't go away once you stop using the herb and maybe just drink a little water. Where when we talk about the pharmaceuticals, even the safest of those, when you buy them and you start, you know, if you get out your huge magnifying glasses and you start reading the long list of side effects, it makes all of those herbs so benign that you wonder why people are frightened of them. The primary reason is is because people have lost familiarity with them. They're not as familiar as baby aspirin, for instance. even though the herbs have been used for really literally centuries longer. So I, I do really emphasize that in this book because I recognize that that is a big issue for people. Um, they've been told by the media and they've been maybe told by their doctors even that, the, that herbs are not safe to give children and there's not been enough scientific research. And, you know, I like to assure people we have the finest research with herbalism. It's empirical. It means that people have been testing it on people for literally thousands of years. And to back that up, we actually do have research now. So in that group that we generally call children's herbs, and definitely in my book and most other books that I've read, there's some some very excellent books that are written to guide parents with using herbs, books by Aviva Jo Rahm and by Mary Bove and Dr. Linda White, a medical doctor, and Sunny Maver, an herbalist, et cetera, and others as well. You know, they're talking about a group of herbs that actually are considered absolutely safe. And as I said, the, the worst side effect you're going to get is maybe a little upset tummy that would be idiosyncratic, maybe uh, itchy eyes and skin, a little skin rash that goes away. So we have a huge safety net with these herbs. And there is a scientific, re- um, there is a scientific evidence and research, but far more important to me, and I think what I put the greatest stock in is that these are herbs that people have been using for centuries, and there's a long, long tradition of safety. To me, that is actually more valuable than maybe 10 years of scientific research. Um, so, yes, I do address that. And all, every book that's dealing with children will have a, a section that is helping guide parents. There's also situations that really are not meant to be dealt with at home, and I do address that as well. You know, there's, when, when is it that you would seek medical help, when you seek your pediatrician and your naturopath, you know, but for all of those everyday things that come up for children, you know, the, um, the cough, the colds, the, the mumps, the measles even, um, the, uh, you know, just any, you know, like the irritations, the upset stomachs, the diarrheas, um, all of those are easily treatable at home with safe, with safe remedies that you make. And I just want to add one more thing about it, David. I know I'm kind of going on on this subject, but it's so important for people. But, you know, the thing is, is that it's just wisdom to start with your safest, um, your safest medicine rather than starting with things that are super, super strong and have side effects. So you start with the gentle herbs and maybe, maybe a warm bath or, you know, just holding your child and rocking them when they're feeling really stressed out. Before you reach for the stronger medications, you always want to start with your herbs and gentle treatments, household treatments. Well, um, we're also learning not only that, you know, obviously we're learning more and more of the downsides of overuse of antibiotics, but we're also getting more and more studies that show them not working for things we thought they were useful for. Like they're not, they're not as great for ear infections or bronchitis as, as we originally pre- presupposed. 
for instance. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just, you know, and again, it just draws us back to those benign, safe remedies that are ecologically sane, <laughs> right. that don't hurt the environment. They're not making anything else sicker when we're using them. I mean, people don't even address that issue about many of the things we're using, but pharmaceutical medication, while it has its strengths, is also one of the most worst ecological. It's making our very environment sick, which, again, feeds into a sick society. So start with our children, you know, teach them about herbs, use the simple remedies. They're very effective or people would not even be using them. I mean, believe me, if I, if I felt like making garlic oil or St. John's Word oil wasn't an effective, if I didn't see it being effective for children's earaches year after year, for my own children, for my grandchildren, I would try something different. But I did this because my grandmother taught me. It worked for my children. I taught my, my children, and they use it for their grandchildren. <laughs> it's so wonderful, and it works so well. So, in, yeah. case you, in case you just tuned in, we're talking today to herbalist Rosemary Gladstar about the latest edition of her book, Herbs for Children's Health. Rosemary, let's, let's start with fevers. What are some of the things that you do for fevers? Because I know that you, you mentioned several things in here that people probably aren't familiar with. Uh, apple cider vinegar bath is one, and then also uh, using enemas. And I'd be interested in hearing about both of those, as well as herbal approaches to fevers. Great. Well, enemas, and you know what? I'm not a huge, I'm not one of those gung-ho enema girls, you know. <laughs> but for fever, I mean, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole um, tradition in naturopathic, in natural medicine for using enemas. And I think they're very effective in certain situations. But I do want to clarify that it's, I don't use them for everything by any means. But for a small child or infant who has a high fever, there's nothing that lowers it faster. And, again, this is something that our grandparents did. There's probably, you know, if you're anywhere in your 50s or older, this was a common treatment that was used. And in hospitals as well, you could generally a catnip enema if you had catnip or even just a warm water enema. A lot of adults don't know how to do enemas anymore because they've just not been trained. But you can buy... Uh, you know, an infant enema bag, and the main thing is not to have a, a strong flush. You know, you just have to measure it and make sure it's just a warm flow of water. And the reason that works so well is it's hydrating the child, and it's also flushing out the toxins. And so the hydration is the most important thing because when children get fevers, unless it gets really high, like I would even say, you know, 102 fever, I'm not really worried about because using apple cider vinegar, I usually dilute the apple cider vinegar with water. I don't use it straight. But using that as a cold pack on their forehead, uh, you know, patting their body, it just lowers the fever. You can also use herbs like um, catnip is very good and also an old favorite, which was peppermint, elder, and yarrow, elderflowers and yarrow. Um, it's a strong diaphoretic that helps to open up the pores and helps people sweat out. So in that way, you're regulating the fever. So with a small child, the primary thing is hydrating the child and helping to flush the fever. So when you hydrate like that, what you do is you're allowing the body's fluids to help wash out the fever. And and um, it's, you know, in all my years, actually, I've never really seen it not work. The two things I do is I use a tepid bath, a warm bath, or else a um, kind of a coolish uh, muslin cloth or a sheet, and I wrap the baby in that. Um, and you give the. I, when I was younger, you know, I'd read in some of the old books where they said to use a cold wrap, a cold bath, but it's torturous to the baby. <laughs> you cause more stress using the cold. So I've always, you know, I use just kind of a cool or a tepid water. Um, what are what are some of the what are some of the approaches you like to use for 
prevention, tonics or other approaches that you used for kids who are getting sick a lot? Well, elderberries is one of the very best um, because it's a wide-spectrum antibiotic. You know, it's got wonderful antiviral, antimicrobial properties. It's rich in antioxidants, that really beautiful deep color. And it tastes delicious. You know, the old elderberry syrups that are so simple to make, and you can buy many of them. Many companies are making them now. But, you know, if especially where you live in, on the West Coast and also out here on the East Coast and anywhere in between in that temperate zone across the United States, you find the elderberries. You have to make sure that you're using red. There's a, a more toxic variety that has red berries, but they're very easy to tell the difference because in the blue elder you have those dark blue or black elders, and in the red it's a red, red color. So just don't use red elderberries. You use the black or the dark, dark purple blue. And you make a, a delicious syrup. I give the recipe in my book. It's very simple to do. Um, and just as a tonic, you know, for children and adults, you just um, it's so easy to get children to take it. I like to take a shot glass full and add it to a little sparkling water. So it's like you have this elderberry punch. It's so, so good. And there's no child that will refuse that. And it's, they don't think of it as taking medicine. It's just taking a nice tonic. Um, so that's a really good one. And then for children that are a little stressed, which actually so many children are today, using oats and lemon balm, I think, is so, it's one of my favorite. I actually take a combination of hawthorn, which we don't usually think of as for children when, you know, in the classic way that we study hawthorn, we're thinking of it for people who have heart problems as a heart tonic. But so many children today need support of their heart. And so hawthorn is both a physiological heart tonic, it's very high in um, antioxidants, and it has, has those very heart, um, those anthrocyanins that are really good for the heart muscle. But on another level, it's very elevating, and it, it has a long history of being used for depression and sadness. Um, and so I love using it for all of those reasons for children, because it helps to bring joy. You know, it helps children to to feel joyful, as well as, as I mentioned, all those nice physiological properties. And I like to mix it with um, lemon balm because lemon balm is refreshing. It's just a very lovely flavor, but it's very calming. Um, it's not like a sedative. It's not going to make your child fall asleep, but it, helps, it just helps you to feel like, aha, I'm in my body. It's very calming for the body. It's also indicated for children that have hyperactivity. Um, there's been a lot of studies about using lemon balm on children who are hyperactive. Um, so, you know, again, not as a sedative, not as a depressant, but something that just helps to balance that energy. And then I like to mix that with oats, with the milky oats, because oats are so good for the nervous system. They're so nourishing. They're rich in calcium. So it's just a really sweet blend. And you could also mix nettle. You know, I'm a huge fan of nettle, and nettle is so such a wonderful tonic for the whole system. Um, and so, you know, all of these herbs are also used by adults. And my very my my sense is that so long as it's safe for an adult, it's safe for children. You just uh, you know you adjust the dosage so you're giving it in a lesser amount to a child, of course. Uh, one one of the tea recipes that you recommend are in the digestive section was was new to me and it was interesting uh, that you you give blackberry root tea for uh, for kids with diarrhea. Could you talk a little bit about that approach? Uh, yeah, it's- it's, um, it's an old native remedy, actually. I, I learned about it when I was still in, you know, a child. Uh, and it, when I first started traveling and when I was in my early 20s, um, I took it with me when I went on my first trips to Mexico. And I did an actual proving of it down there. I'm not going to bore you with the story of it. But, you know, where I had a really bad case of diarrhea and I actually tried the, 
blackberry root, and it worked unbelievably. So it remains to this day my favorite remedy for um, diarrhea, um, for any, you know, at any age for children as well, as well as adults. But, I mean, I've used it when I traveled to Cambodia. I've traveled with my groups, and we always use it. It's just a remarkable herb. And it, as I said, it has a long history of being used by the native people for when, when, when they have diarrhea and dysentery. It also has antibacterial, antibiotic properties, so it's not, you know, sometimes people will say, you know, like, well, with diarrhea, aren't you supposed to just let the body cleanse itself? But, and so that's true to a degree, but with a child, they can become dehydrated very quickly. So it's much better to stop the diarrhea and then clean the body in a more gentle, gentle way. And when you're traveling, um, you don't, you don't want to have dysentery and diarrhea when you're traveling. So the, the blackberry is just a fabulous remedy for that. Um, and so the thing that's really interesting about blackberry is, especially again on the West Coast, it grows everywhere, but you don't see it a lot in the stores, and it's because it's so darn hard to dig out. But um, if people have blackberry root in their backyards, you don't want to tincture the really hard, fibrous root, like the central core root, but all of those um, tendrils that come off of it that are not woody, those are chopped up, and they're very astringent, so that's partly how it's working. But as I said, it also has the antiviral, antibacterial properties as well. And what are some of your uh, first uh, approaches for colic in, in babies? Yeah, you know, usually with colic, there's, there's a number of factors that might be going on. You know, one is just simply when a newborn comes into the world, oftentimes they're di- you know, their systems are still learning to work. And so sometimes the colic is fairly temporary. It might just be a few days or a couple of weeks. And so in that case, I, I think, you know, just a little, um, when the mother is nursing, just making sure there's not loud noise, that maybe quiet music or silence. The mother drinks, like, lemon balm tea or camel tea, so she's real relaxed. Um, if the child is fussing a lot, you can give chamomile. Chamomile is the herb supreme for colicky babies. Um, the other thing to always look at also is if, if a mother's eating something that can be irritating, like any of the brassicas, the... Well, I think they're called the crucifaces now, but I still call them the brassicas. But cabbages and cauliflower and broccoli and the mustard family, that family can be very irritating to baby's system and cause gas. So there's, that's the other. And, and hot, spicy foods and also a lot of garlic, those things can just cause irritation to the mother's milk, even to the baby. So it's looking at what the mother's eating and, and maybe eating a little bit blandly. Have some nice oatmeal and some... Uh, simple soups and some grains, foods that won't irritate, you know, if you're not allergic to grains, but foods that won't be irritating to the child. Um, um, And so that's really the first place. And then there's also these wonderful carminative herbs that have a long history. So there's dill and anise and fennel seeds. And all of those herbs, they help to expel gas and dispel gas in the system. But, you know, quite honestly, they're, they're... there are some infants that have a tremendous amount of digestive upset um, when they're born, and, some, and, and sometimes it doesn't just go away after two or three weeks, and in those cases, the parent has to be a little more creative. But most colic, by, by, by calming the nursing station, you know, where you're feeding, being very calm, um, by looking at what you're eating and making sure you're not eating things that will irritate the baby, by giving a chamomile tea in very small amounts, you know, just a little chamomile tea. It can be in just a little bottle or a little eyedropper. 
Um, and then also like a warm poultice, a uh, very warm poultice. It can be just a cloth that's been soaked in warm water, a very small water bottle with a little warm water because the warm relaxes the muscles. Um, so that's another thing, you know. And, um, so, there's, yeah, there's a lot of simple remedies that are very helpful for colicky babies. I think it's helpful for the mother also to be treating herself with nervines because it's actually as stressful for the parents, usually the mother, sometimes the father, as it is for the baby. So um, there's also these wonderful little homeopathic tablets that are um, for colicky babies. There's Highlands um, colic tablets that are helpful. And also I, <laughs> I also use Highlands teething tablets for colicky babies. I found those to be really helpful as well. And then for, for parents who are wanting to possibly make their own herbs uh, for their kids, are, what are your favorite sweeteners and, and flavorants for people who are to make the, the medicines taste good if they're not as good tasting as elderberry, for instance? Yeah. Well, even with elderberry, you have to add a sweetener. Elderberry by itself is bitter. Um, it, it's nice tasting, but it's sour, and it's not going to be appealing to a child for most children. I mean, you have the occasional child <laughs> that will eat or drink anything, but for most children, they, have, they love sweet. And, you know, parents are nervous about sweet for really good reasons because we have so much sugar. And, you know, I think I, I like so many people, believe that one of the main causes of so many of our health problems is an overabundance of sugar and too much stress. I think those are the two main factors. But children also do well on sweet, so long as they're natural, like fruits and dried fruits even, and, um, you know, some of the sweeter berries and herbs. So because they need that quick energy, it's the same as older people. Like when people get really, really old, I'm, talk I'm not talking about 50 or 60, but when they get to be, you know, 80 and 90, they like sweet things because it gives them that quick energy. So I'm not saying that we need to sugar feed people. I'm just saying that it's a normal physiological um, you know, energetics for older people and younger people because when you look at children, they're moving constantly. Even a baby, I mean, they sleep a lot, but when they're awake, they are kicking their hands and feet and arms, and they're in constant movement, and certainly when they become toddlers, so they need that quick energy. So so to answer your question, I love the herb stevia. It's um, called sweet herb. I, you know, there's all kinds of commercial preparations now available. I just like to take the leaves. The leaf is very sweet. It's 50 times sweeter than sugar. has no calories. It doesn't do anything harmful for the teeth. And it's actually really good for the pancreas. So it's kind Rosemary? of a perfect... Pardon? Ro oh, uh, unfortunately, our, our half an hour <laughs> zipped by. So uh, it, was, it was great having you on Health Watch again. And um, hopefully people will check out Herbs for Children's Health. It's a really, it's a really interesting read and a useful uh, reference guide. I, um, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, David, so much. And I'm sorry for talking away like oh, that. Oh, no, it was great. <laughs> Thanks for coming back. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. Bye-bye. Have a lovely day. You too. We were talking today to herbalist Rosemary Gladstar about the latest edition of her book, Herbs for Children's Health. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine.